You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Before I get started this morning, I kind of want to just uh, let you know about something that we're going to do this year that we've not ever really done before. We feel like it's uh, important, again, to try to provide as many opportunities for people to connect um, with God, with others. So uh, for the next, I think, four Wednesdays, um, beginning this coming Wednesday from 9 to 5, we're going to have the church sanctuary open up here. We're going to have the lights on. Um, we'll, we'll turn the heat on, maybe. Um, yeah. <laughs> We'll have the heat on. Uh, we're going to have some music uh, kind of just playing very, very quietly, Christmas music in the background. And it's just an opportunity for anybody between 9 and 5, whenever you want, stay as long as you want. It's just an opportunity for you to be able to come in, pray. If you want to bring your Bible, uh, we'll try to have some Bibles here. Um, if you want to just Take time to read scripture. We'll have stuff uh, up here for communion if you'd like to take communion. It's just a time for you to just kind of come uh, and just be able to connect um, with God. And so again, it's going to be every Wednesday, 9 to 5. Uh, we'll make sure that somebody's here to kind of give you access uh, to the building. We'll have everything on and you just kind of come and go um, as you please. Um, so we're just going to try to make that available for the next uh, four Wednesdays uh, here uh, um, for Advent. And again, it's just a way to help you, um, I think, just to kind of be able to, to connect uh, and, and uh, hopefully really be able to deepen uh, your relationship uh, with God as well. Last week, I uh, talked about that website ranker, and I, I don't know that any of you probably went home and looked at that, um, but again, it's, it's a place where you can go to find out how people rank the best ofs or the, their favorites, um, and again, you could go there uh, for a variety of categories, so they would have, you know, like uh, for sports, you know, the best sportsman, um, they would have like for entertainment, you know, the best actor uh, or actress, um, they even have like, you know, for, for literature, the best books, the best author. And so people kind of rank uh, who they kind of think is the best in those various uh, categories. And uh, one of them we talked about last week was the most influential person in you know, the history of mankind, and, and of course, that was Jesus. Now, interestingly, um, there is also a category uh, for movies, and people kind of go in and, and rank, like, the best overall movie. There's, like, the best Christmas uh, movie, which, by the way, is It's a Wonderful Life. If you have never seen that movie, It's a Wonderful Life, it is, it's a, it's just a, I watch it every year. It is one of my favorite Christmas movies. It's just got a powerful message. Again, it just reiterates uh, just the importance of life, uh, not just life in general, but the importance of your life, of every life, and how it impacts others. Uh, and really, uh, it's just a great movie. So it, it is uh, one of the, the greatest. Now, one of the overall greatest movies of all time uh, was a movie uh, that starred Mel Gibson, 
uh, who played William Wallace, and it's the movie Braveheart. Now, if you've ever seen that movie, you would agree it is, it, it would belong in, you know, one of the best of in terms of movies. Now, it's got kind of a lot of very, very memorable scenes in it, but I think one of the more poignant um, and really deeply meaningful scenes um, in the movie, uh, it's a statement that William Wallace makes, and it's a very, very short, it's just a very, very pithy statement, and it's, he says this, every man dies, but not every man truly lives. William Wallace was so right. Everyone dies, but not everyone truly lives. Last week, we started talking about what the Bible really has to say about what it really means to live and the life that Jesus came to give us. And one of the many victories that Jesus came to give us through his victory, his death on the cross, his victory through the resurrection, was what I called true freedom. And true freedom, again, it, it is that complete freedom from the fear of death. It is freedom from the fear of condemnation. It's freedom from the fear of shame. It's freedom from the fear of rejection. Freedom from the guilt of our past sins, just to name a few. And the vast majority of people who live will live and die in slavery and bondage. And Paul talks about that uh, there in Galatians, and he talks again about the sins of the flesh. And, and again, that's all bondage. It, it's, it's, it's the bondage uh, to lust. It's the bondage to pornography. It's the bondage to jealousy and anger, pride, bitterness, and arrogance. And Apostle Paul writes a letter to a church full of believers in a place called Galatia. And Paul's main point about the whole letter to Galatians was it's all about true freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from ourselves, freedom from any hold the enemy has over us. And that's why, again, if you had to boil the whole book of Galatians down to, to a theme, the theme would be true freedom. And I believe that most people die with ever, out ever really having truly lived. Most people experience death without ever truly experiencing life. And I believe that because of a statement that Jesus made in John 10.10. 10. He said, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give you life and to give it to you in its fullness. Jesus comes to give us something we could never have apart from him. Had Jesus not come to give us that fullness of life, we would never know what it means to truly live and to truly live free. I love what 1 John 5.12 says. And it says, whoever has the Son has life. Man, it, it doesn't get any simpler than that. Whoever has the Son has life. And there is only one life worth living, and that life is found, that life is given 
to us through the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul shares with both believers and unbelievers what that life Jesus came to give us, what that looks like. And it is the only way to live. And so Paul began his ministry to the local churches and and he's really emphasizing this freedom, this true, total, complete freedom that Jesus has come to give us. That freedom from sin, the freedom of the fear of performance. You don't have to do anything for God to love you, to accept you, to want a relationship with you. It's freedom from striving to please God. It's freedom from not being good enough. That fear of never measuring up. No other book in the Bible explains more clearly why Christianity is completely, uniquely, and totally different from every other religion, every other faith in the world than the book of Galatians. It is a divine letter from God to us how to truly live as a true follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. Now again, Paul's clearest statement on this theme of spiritual freedom in the book of Galatians is Galatians 5.1, and there it says, it was for freedom that Christ came to set us free. Therefore, keep standing Firm and do not subject yourselves again to, this, to that yoke of slavery. And again, as you read through the book of Galatians, you begin to realize that yoke of slavery that Paul is referring to there, again, it's all of the religious laws, it's the rituals, it's, it's the rules, it's the regulations that Christ came, lived, died, resurrected from to free us all from. And Jesus did it. So we wouldn't have to do it for ourselves because we couldn't do it for ourselves even if we wanted to. But Jesus comes, he does it for us, he offers it to us as a gift, a gift of rest. It is a place where again we begin to live from a seat of victory. And so Paul's major point in Galatians is because of Jesus, you are free from the rules. You're free from religion. You're free from laws. You're free even from regulations. What God has done to make sinners forgiven, redeemed, and to be in right standing with him. That message is what we call the gospel. It's the good news. Every time you hear that word gospel, good news, it's the good news. It's what God has done that we could never do to give us something we could never achieve on our own. And that is everlasting life. It's forgiveness. It's redemption. It's true, total freedom in every sense of the word. And so Paul writes this letter to these new converts, these new believers because he sees a problem that's beginning to develop there in the church of Galatia. And he tells them three things that he sees, and he says, here's how to remedy it. And we started looking at those those three things last week. And the first thing Paul tells them is the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it emphasizes the grace of God. 
The true gospel message will always highlight the grace of God. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says this, I am shocked. Paul says in, in other versions, I'm stunned that you are turning away so soon from God who has called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. And he says, you are following a different way, a different path that pretends to be the good news. But it is not the good news at all. And again, Paul is stunned. He's just perplexed. He's amazed. Uh, He's just bewildered. And rightly so, the people in this church have quickly turned away from the gospel of Christ. And and Paul says you're beginning to embrace a new gospel that really is no gospel at all. There's nothing good about this. Now while this was maybe new for that church in Galatia, it is not new for Christianity There's always been and there will always be a temptation for Christians, for churches to be tempted to exchange the true gospel for a false gospel. And last Sunday we started looking at some of the ways, uh, some of the more popular gospels that are circulating through the church today that really are not gospels at all. They're preaching freedom, but they're not freedom at all. They're really bondage. The first one we looked at last Sunday was what we call the prosperity gospel. I'm not going to go into that because I spent and, and considerable amount of time taking that uh, apart. You can get online and listen to last week's message and hear uh, what I said about that. The second one I want to talk about this morning is, is called the cheap grace gospel or, or what some call the hyper faith or the hyper grace gospel. And that gospel, that, that teaching says this, God loves me unconditionally and God loves me just the way I am. No need to change. Repentance is not necessary. Now I want to tell you that, that two of those things I just said are absolutely true. God loves you unconditionally without question. God loves you totally, completely. His love for you is at at its fullest. God could never love you more than he loves you right now because his love for you is at its greatest. That is true. And God accepts you. God loves you just where you are. That is true. However, Unconditional love does not equate into unconditional acceptance of any lifestyle choice you make. Unconditional love does not mean I can do whatever I want to do no matter how sinful no matter how it impacts others negatively, because God is a God of grace and he will forgive me, I don't even need to ask for it. The hyper-grace gospel promotes the belief that since I am a Christian, it's impossible for me to sin. I am perfect. 
I no longer sin. And since I no longer sin, I no longer need to repent. I no longer need to ask for God's forgiveness. That's the hyper grace gospel in a nutshell. They'll go on to say all of my sins, past, present, and future, all have been forgiven, atoned by the blood of Christ. Therefore, I no longer need to repent because I've already been forgiven. It's impossible for me to sin. God's grace covers me. Now again, there's an element of truth in there. There is forgiveness for our sins through the blood of Christ for our past, our present, and our future sins. But here's the ditches. We talked about ditches last week. And here's the ditch that we talked about again last week. 1 John 1.9 says, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Now, it is through the confessing of our sins, those sins in the past, those sins that we commit in the present, and those sins that we will commit in the future, although we don't know what they will be, we know based upon our, our present that, that we sin. Some of you may have, have sinned already this morning. Some of us are going to sin as we get further into the day. It is confessing those sins that we find forgiveness. So when we confessed our sins of the past, the blood of Christ, it cleansed us. He forgave us. He restores us. When, when we confess our sins in the present, when we confess the sins that, that we're, we've maybe done before we got here or will do shortly after we leave here, again, when we confess those sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive us. His blood will cleanse us. And when we confess the sins that we will commit in the future, again, we don't know what those will be, but again, when we sin, if we, if we confess that to God, we're going to find his faithfulness, his justness in those sins to come, those moments to come, just as we have in the present, just as we have in the past. Nothing changes with God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and, and he's the God of the past, the present, and the future. What he does in the past, he'll do in the present. What he does in the present, he's faithful to do in the future. One confession of sin, hear me, one confession of sin, one act of repentance does not cover all past, present, and future sins. This is the hyper-grace gospel. That is why they believe it's, it's no longer possible to sin. I am perfect. I have nothing 
to confess I have nothing that needs forgiveness because I have been forgiven of all of my sins, past, present, and future. They just take all of it, lump it together under one act. The blood of Christ covers that. Therefore, I'm, I'm done. I don't, there's nothing more left for me to confess, to do. Passage of Scripture from 1 John 1.9 was written to believers to disciples, to people who were following, who were pursuing Jesus. It wasn't written to unbelievers. And it goes on to say, my dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. Now that implies to me that it's possible to sin after you become a believer, right? Or are there, why would he be writing this to believers? It would, it would be a mute point. So he says, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, again, implying it is possible to sin. We have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. There's none righteous but him. Every time we sin and we fall short of God's glorious standard, again, the Bible says, if we're going to stand here and say, we, we don't sin, I don't sin, you're calling God a liar and his word has no place in your heart. That, that's what the gospel says. Every time we sin and every time we come up short, the Holy Spirit, it, he's going to lead you to repentance. He will. Because that's an extension of God's kindness, of his goodness, is that he leads us to repentance. It's part of what the Holy Spirit does. And we just need to cooperate. We respond to God's Holy Spirit when he's leading us by his kindness to repentance. We don't want to rebel. We don't want to push against that. We don't want to ignore that. We, we want to cooperate with that. We want, to, we want to lean into what the Holy Spirit's doing. We want to go where he's taking us, and he'll always lead you to repentance. By confessing that what we have done was sinful, that it hurt the heart of God, that it, it may have hurt a brother or sister, it may have hurt someone, and we just need to take responsibility for that. We, 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 we confess that sin, and we just ask that the blood of Christ would cleanse us and would restore us. Now listen to, to this from Jude 4. And again, this is written to believers and here he says, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. That is the hyper-grace gospel in a nutshell. God's marvelous grace. We're just going to focus on the grace of God and we're going to do, we're going to say, we're going to live in whatever ways we want to because the grace of God will just cover over it all. He says, the condemnation of such people was recorded long ago. Now that tells me this is not something new. 
that tells me this, this gospel, this false gospel, this false truth has been around for a long time, and it's going to be around probably till Jesus comes again. So he says, I, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us, encourages us, gives us the freedom to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to be very, very careful as disciples, as followers of Jesus. We want to be very, very careful as a, a body of Christ, a congregation here that we are not trampling upon, that we are not misappropriating or misapplying the grace of God and using it as a license for sin. So, so that, that is what we call the hyper-grace gospel. And it is a gospel that is very much alive in the churches today. Then there's what, uh, another gospel. The third gospel is what is called the social gospel. And the social gospel simply says that it is the church's responsibility it's the church's mandate. It's the church's number one responsibility is to feed the homeless, to clothe the naked, take care of the sick, pay their rent, pay their utility bills, and see that justice is done throughout the world. That is kind of what the social gospel um, kind of advocates. Now, I, I want to be as... Um, I want to emphasize this as strongly as I can. What I just said, that is a ramification of the gospel. All of those things I just mentioned, that's the fruit of the gospel. Those are the byproducts of the gospel. Those things should be the result of the true gospel being preached and lived out, not the pursuit of the gospel. One great man said, if this is all we do, and we don't preach the true gospel, the good news, we are just making the world a better place for people to go to hell from. And I'm on the, uh, I'm, I just finished the last paragraph there on page six. Theologian H. Richard Niebuhr, describing this kind of gospel, he, he summed it up like this. He said, uh, this kind of a gospel, a social gospel, it is a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's not good news. That is not the gospel. I am all for helping people in need. Jesus was, we should be too. But I'm afraid a lot of the benevolence churches do for people keeps them locked in a cycle of dependency rather than lifting them out of it. Oftentimes, it really makes us feel good without really doing much good. It becomes more about us than the people we're trying to help. When we simply focus on the symptoms, 
rather than getting to the underlying causes. We often do more harm than good when we're trying to help. I'll be honest, from my own personal experience, I don't, and I don't say this with any great sense of pride, it's a lot simpler to give somebody money for groceries, give somebody some money for their utilities so I can get them out the door and get back to what really matters or what I'm doing or what I think is important in the moment. This is an inconvenience, so I'm going to find the quickest way to end that inconvenience so that I'm no longer inconvenienced. Whenever I have, I have people who call the church needing some kind of assistance, whether it's food, rent assistance, utility assistance, any kind of assistance, one of the first questions I ask them is, have you called the local church you attend to ask them for help? The vast majority, I would say 99% of them say, I don't go to church. Well, that's one of the underlying causes. Our rebellion toward God, our lack of a relationship or a meaningful relationship with God, any kind of a meaningful connection with God comes with built-in consequences. It just does. And we can argue about that all day long, but the evidence is, is overwhelming out there. Whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, and or mentally, there are built-in consequences. When you reject, you rebel, you choose not to acknowledge God. There are going to be ramifications of that. Our job as a church, our job as believers, is first and foremost to reconcile them, to restore them into a living relationship with God through the good news of the gospel. And from that relationship with their heavenly Father comes incredible blessings that will kind of spill into every sphere of their life. It takes them from looking to me, to you, to us as their provider, and it puts their rightful focus on their heavenly Father as their provider. It's when we get them focused on Him in relationship to Him, focusing on His kingdom, His righteousness, that out of that relationship, Jesus said, all these other things shall be added. All of these other things shall be met, shall be taken care of. That is our focus. Listen to Paul's statement in 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 6. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this option. Brothers and sisters, we, we give you this suggestion. Take it or leave it. Doesn't work. No, it's not what he says. What word does he use? Does that sound optional to you? No. It doesn't sound optional to me. And, and I, I kind of did due diligence on this. And I, I kind of got on. And I looked at a ton of 
of um, translations, and I could not find any other word that any other translator used than the word command. So I'm pretty sure that's what Paul meant. I give you this command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that is? Authority. Paul's taking a command and he's linking it with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That just simply means you got something to stand on. When you make the statement Paul's about to make, it is a command that comes with the authority of God to implement it. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they received from us. Stay away. Don't interact, don't get involved, don't try to rescue them. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they received from us. For we know that you ought to imitate us. Paul was always good at saying, you know, uh, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what he's saying here. He says, we, we, we were not idle. We did not live idle lives when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night, so we would not be a burden to any of you. He said, we certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this what? Does that, again, sound optional to you? Is it a suggestion? No, it's a command. What is the command? Those unwilling to work will not eat. There are ramifications to idleness. There are ramifications. There are consequences to laziness. If you don't work, you shouldn't expect to eat. That's what Paul is saying here. And again, it's not an option. It is a command. We commend such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, there's the authority to settle down and work to earn a living. That's part of what God has created you to do. It's part of what God has instilled in you. God has given you gifts, talents, abilities that you can use to get a job, to make a living, to support yourself. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. Never get tired, Paul's saying, of getting up every morning as early as you maybe get up and go in and do a job that maybe you're not 100% thrilled with. Don't get tired of that. Don't, don't get discouraged by that, Paul's saying. Never get tired of earning a living, of making a way for yourself and your family. So take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them so that they will be ashamed. Do you know how much time we spend trying to rescue people from that stigma? 
and it's there for really a purpose. They need to feel shame. If they can work but choose not to work, they shouldn't eat and they should feel ashamed about that. We should not be false burden bearing. We should not be taking that upon ourselves. But we do. And we just continue to make ways, we continue to make excuses for them to continue to do nothing but meddle in other people's lives, getting involved in things they have no business getting involved in because they don't have anything else to do with their time because they don't have a job. Now, you can accu don't accuse me of being heartless. I didn't write this. I'm just telling you what he wrote. Stay away from them so that they will be ashamed. There are some things that we need to feel shame over. We've done so much in our society, in our church, as to try to protect people from feeling anything negative. No, they, Paul says they need to feel this. There needs to be a certain level of shame in people who can work but don't choose to. And stop rescuing them from that. And he goes on, don't think of them as enemies. In other words, we don't have to be nasty about this. We don't have to be mean. Also, don't, don't treat them as enemies. But warn them as you would a brother or sister. This is part of Paul's rebuttal to the current day social gospel. It's also a really nice way of saying, get a job. A couple months ago, a guy came to the church. I'm going to close with this. A couple months ago, a guy came to the church looking for some food and clothing. Early 20s. Kind of looking at him. And there was nothing physically wrong with the guy that I could tell. Very well-abled, bodied guy. So let him in the church. Was talking to him. One point I said to him, so are you looking for a job? We always have people, you know, that are looking to hire people. We get people that call here and say, hey, if you know of me that, that need a job, I'm, I'm looking for people. So, so I said, uh, uh, you know, I asked him, are, are you looking for a job? He said, I don't want a job. And I said, well, why would a young, well-abled-bodied man like you not want a job? And he said, and I quote, just being true to myself. I could not get this guy out of the church fast enough. I had nothing to offer this guy. Very arrogant uh, young man. And I just felt like until this guy falls to the absolute bottom, he's never really going to understand what he needs to do to pick himself back up and to begin to live uh, the life that God has for him. I felt no obligation or responsibility to help a guy like this or anyone like this at all. As a matter of fact, I think everybody, including all the social programs we have in this country, need to stop aiding and abetting this kind of recklessness, this kind of laziness, and let them get so hungry, let them get so destitute that they will see the need to use their God-given abilities to stop taking from others 
get a job and learn how to begin to provide for themselves, to begin to learn how to live the life that God has come to give them through Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is essentially advocating there in 2 Thessalonians. Get a job or go hungry. Because I'll guarantee you, you're going to get to a point where you're going to get so hungry, you will get a job to begin to provide for your needs. So when anybody comes to the church, calls needing assistance, here's what I tell them now. We are committed to working and helping people who are actively attending this church. Don't need to be a member. I just need to know that you're here. I need to know that you're working in your relationship with God. I want to be able to kind of come alongside you and begin to ask questions, to begin to maybe help identify, are there things that maybe you could begin doing that that would kind of remove some of the blockades of God's blessings? Because obviously, God's blessings are not getting through. So let's begin to look at what are the blockades and what we can do to begin to remove them so that the blessing of God are freely and uh, fully able to flow. Because when we get those in the right order, when we're seeking uh, after the kingdom, when we're seeking after his righteousness, blessings flow. And their lives will improve because what we know is God is a good, good Father, he is kind, he is loving. And and like we talked last week, just like we who are parents know how to give good gifts to our children, we're sinful. How much more can a righteous, holy, perfect God give good gifts to his children? Amen? Amen. All right, let's go ahead and stand and uh, we'll we'll kind of pick up here um, next week. I know that this is, it, it, kind of sound, it, can, it can kind of sound hard, um, but I, I believe, folks, we are coming um, into a time in our country where I think we're going to have to begin to be very sober-minded um, with our lives, and we're going to need to be sober-minded uh, about the lives of others. I will tell you this, it, it has been amazing to me, um, I think since that first stimulus program uh, that Congress passed, I think with, with, that was tied to uh, the coronavirus. It was very, very interesting to me. Um, our, we never had any phone calls. No one ever stopped in looking for any kind of assistance. It was kind of like, it's kind of like the, the faucet was on and then someone just shut it off. No phone calls, nobody coming in, nobody needing anything. And the only thing I could figure was the stimulus was like in the trillions of dollars. And it must have covered programs that met all of those needs. What is interesting now that we are on the tail end of that and a lot of that what that stimulus provided for is either, has either ended or is coming to an end, and we're starting to see that the faucet is, is beginning to turn back on. I read an article where they, they talked about, I believe that they don't do something uh, by the end of December in terms of a bailout, and we're talking trillions and trillions of dollars that we don't have, <laughs> oh, by the way. Um, 
that there are, that the, that there are going to be people, I, I think like a third of American families are going to lose their homes because right now one of the things that they put in that was uh, you can't evict people. So at the end of December, apparently that stipulation comes off um, and they're saying unless something comes in, and again, another stimulus, another trillion and trillion dollar stimulus that, that people are going to, this is where I said, we're going to have to start being sober-minded. And we're going to have to start uh, being able to help people in ways that they truly need help. And to me, if you're, if you're not willing to deal with spiritual issues, my paying your rent, my paying your utilities, my giving you groceries, it's just putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. And the job of the church is to come to bring the good news that you have a good heavenly Father who is more than able, more than willing, is more than happy to meet all your needs in Christ Jesus. We just got to get your relationship with him right and that is the good news of the gospel. Father, we just thank you. And Lord, it, it is. This, is. this is hard stuff sometimes to hear. And yet Paul never shied away from it. Paul was willing to really speak the truth and to speak it in love. And Father, this morning, we, we really need to take to heart what Paul is saying here. And we need to understand why Paul was saying it. And this isn't about getting people to look to us, to depend on us. It's really about us needing to get people to look to you and to depend on you for their every need. For God, we're all needy. We all stand in great need. As Jesus said, how blessed are we when we realize how spiritually impoverished we really are. For then the kingdom of heaven is ours. And so God, there's not a one of us here this morning that don't need you in, in some or in many ways. And God, the good news of the gospel is whether we need you in one way or a thousand ways, you're there in all of them. As a matter of fact, your word says that, that you have the answer. You have the provision before we ever are aware of that need. So, Father, I just thank you for that beautiful truth, that way that your love is displayed for us, that the needs that we have tomorrow, next week, next month, that we don't even know we have today, that, Father, you've already met those needs. You've already provided for that. We just need to stay connected with you. So Lord, when it comes to ourselves, when it comes to others, I pray again that our focus would be connecting them with you. To your provision, to your love, to your grace, to your mercy. 
to your kindness that leads us to repentance, that brings us to change, that transforms and redeems us, Father. We thank you for that. And Father, again, as we just head into this season of Advent, would you just be at work in our hearts? Enlarge our capacity to contain you this Christmas season. And so, Father, we just come and we recognize you. We hear your invitation to come and to dine with you. And we do that in the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your name. Amen. You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org.